Hello, this is Steven, and this is my coda to last week's conversation about verses. Um, I guess the first thing I want to say is that I really enjoyed talking to Travis and Seth about the adversarial relationships we're experiencing today, um, writ large, on the body politic that is the United States, actually in the world. Um, and the reason why I like talking about it was because... I keep thinking, and it, it, this is not a kumbaya kind of thing, but I keep thinking that we have obviously we have more in common than we think we do, even where we're ideologically opposed to one another. I mean, I'm really, really frustrated about the Roe versus Wade, but I really like what Travis said about maybe it light, it'll light a fire under some of us. I know that some people have been fighting this fight for a long time, for decades, because they understood how fragile. Roe versus Wade was in terms of its actual, how the judgment was written. And this only took 49 years overturn in my lifetime. I always want to lead with the best information. I want to lead with a good heart. And I want to lead with some semblance of civ civility. Not at the expense of my passion or the severity of the, of the, the situation. I hope that makes sense. I also want to say that I've been thinking about adversarial relationships as they relate to my own sensibility growing up. I mean, I grew up in a household, um, Midwestern household, and there was adversarial relationships being played out all the time from my, between my parents, you know, the little small battles between me and my siblings, on the playground, football field, in the classroom, you name it. There was always... It's not a sense necessarily a fight or something that's serious, but it was but there were just ideas that we were sort of learning how to talk to each other or be with each other or compromise. Um, and so, right now at fifty six, I think about the adversarial relationships that keep me <laughs> um, keep me curious, keep me enthralled, but also hopefully will push me to be a more fully realize human being in my own words, no, my own mind. You know what I mean? Um, when I think, I remember thinking that queerness or gayness was something that once I got to the point where I'm in the club and going, okay, not proverbial club, I mean, for proverbial club, when I was in my own body and in my own comfortable space with it, there'll be a lot less stress and the different stressors. So if the coming out process was, at least for me, was um, close friends, college friends, siblings, my mom, and then finally my dad. After that, I didn't give a fuck who cared. I mean, I didn't give a fuck who knew or had anything to say about it because it was those are the people I care most about. And then I think about how identity is being used today to really make a lot of you know, to either as a political advantage or one side to say, oh, my God, these people are these queer people are grooming your children to trans people. They can't come in our bathrooms. Da, da, da. You have no right to choose. I believe that you were born as a woman or as a girl and you, you are a female. That kind of nonsense. And the reason why it's nonsense to me is because I believe very strongly in the self-actualized person. I think that once people are self-actualized, we have a better chance of living in a society not that's not totally absent of conflict or I'm not really looking at some sort of 
naive or uh, nirvana, what I'm actually thinking more about is that if you're fully realized, I think a lot, I believe, and I could be wrong, and I may never be alive to actually witness this ever, if you're fully realized, or at least very, very close to it, I don't think you'll have a need to be aggressive or a need to be so angry with people. I think you can live with other people without them having to believe what you believe. That could be totally naive. It could be totally Pollyanna-ish. I totally get it. But I do feel like the more I become fully actualized, the less I have a need for anyone to fucking agree with me. Do you know? I mean, that's one thing as an individual. But when I think about politically, I want the space. I want as much space as not just for myself, but for other people to be actualized. And how do you do that in a culture where you're constantly being pitted against one another, racially, gender-wise, class-wise? How do you do that work? That's what I'll be trying to do for the rest of my life is to figure that shit out. Um, and to be sure, I don't mind having an adversarial relationship with some people because some people I don't fucking agree with. And I think that they need to shut the fuck up. But I'm trying to figure out not just why I feel that way, but also take it from their side. So, I mean, there's my sloppy coda. Hope you guys have a good night or a good day or a good afternoon. Hi, this is Seth Rodney. I'm coming to you today from Newburgh, New York, where I live. This is my note for the American Age podcast. It's Sunday, July 10th. I want to follow up on a thread of the last conversation that we had, Stephen, Travis, and I, about the fall of Roe versus Wade and what happens in the aftermath. Travis had left off the conversation with this rather provocative uh, prediction that six months from now or so, uh, the Democrats or the progressives will have moved on from the issue of uh, Roe versus Wade and protecting the ability of women to get abortions, uh, uh, regardless of whether there's a medical necessity. Uh, he thinks that they'll be onto something else uh, because he does. He doesn't think that the issue of bodily autonomy is actually of crucial importance to progressives. I I don't know what to say about progressives. I mean, I don't. I feel like talking about uh, this group of political operatives is just going to be woefully beset with generalizations. I just don't know enough about progressive politicians. I don't spend that very much time in those circles talking with um, people who identify as such and who are doing the work of community organizing and uh, getting things on ballots and, and referenda. And I, I just, I don't, I don't know. But I do think that this issue is not going to go away. I don't think that, I, I very much doubt that progressives are going to move on to something else because this is really key. 
This is a big deal because, according to Gia Tolentino, the staff writer at The New Yorker, every year there's about a million miscarriages in the United States. And essentially what the fall of Roe v. Wade does is it allows local governments to pass laws, and lots of, and some of these laws have already been passed in um, places, I believe, like Oklahoma, uh, this Gia mentions Oklahoma and the Humanity of the Unborn Child Act passed in 2016 that requires that the State Department of Health, quote, clearly and consistently teach that abortion kills a living being. And, uh, uh, there are cases, she lists several in this article, another risk in overturning Roe, which is dated February 20, 2022. Uh, she lists several cases in which women have been prosecuted for using methamphetamines while pregnant or using uh, marijuana recreationally while being pregnant. Uh, according to her analysis, um, and let me quote her, these cases are not anomalous, they're part of an intensifying pattern. Uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, at least 160 women who used drugs while pregnant were charged with, charged with child neglect and distribution of drugs to minors. Uh, so according to her, uh, unquote, I should say, uh, uh, the, the under the doctrine of fetal personhood, which is what these religious... It's really hard for me not to say, and not to say, I mean, it's unfair to say nutcases. Um, but these people who wholeheartedly follow these, this superstition that there's some sort of God out there who bestows some sort of spirit to every fetus in a womb. I just, I just, I really don't. I really have no respect for that, no patience for that kind of drivel. Um, but for those who believe that, the, the problem with uh, them being able to pass laws and uh, constrain human behavior is that the way they're going to constrain it, um, and more people than Gia or me believe this, they're going to... Um, uh, resort to more common, more complicated, and more intimate ways of surveilling and criminalizing uh, what women do with their bodies while they are pregnant. I don't think this issue is going away. I think that when it comes to bodily autonomy, um, there are moments, I think there are absolutely are moments when one's bodily autonomy is less, Im well, is it, I don't want to say it's less important, but yes, may well, maybe that is what I'm saying. It is, uh, in, the, in the case of a pandemic, not the one that we just had, but in the case of a pandemic where, in which being vaccinated actually would mean potentially passing on the disease to other people. Uh, in that case, I, I 
think that bodily autonomy has to take uh, a backseat to public health. I fundamentally believe that. I think one of the things that human beings have a really hard time dealing with is the fact that we live with other human beings and that the other human beings' lives are just as important as ours. Um, but that aside, I think that this issue of criminalizing women's behavior is not going to go away. Um, I think this idea of fetal personhood is not going to go away. I think that as long as Christianity, or at least this version of Christianity that is largely held by um, the evangelical sect in the U.S., as long as that idea is held, uh, this issue is not going to go away. It's, it's, um, it's just, it makes me, makes me not want to live in this country. Yeah, I've had this conversation with a lot of people lately about where else I could live. And there aren't a lot of other places where I could do what I do and be, um, and be financially compensated for the work that I do in the way that I am. I don't know. I mean, Europe is a possibility, but then, oh, there are all kinds of issues with living in Europe having to potentially learn another language is, is, is one of them, but I don't know. I don't know. Um, I wish I could say that it was a silver lining to this. I really do. I mean, maybe there will be when we on the left actually get together and um, vote on this single issue and mm, really change, fundamentally change the political makeup of the country by getting rid of gerrymandered districts and reinstating the 1965 uh, Voting Rights Act, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, uh, they had certain prohibitions in place whereby state legislatures had to get pre-clearance when they sought to significantly change the regulations around voting. And that went away with the Roberts Court's decision in a few years ago. I don't remember what the specific case was. But if we don't rein in gerrymandered districts, if we don't get money out of politics, I, I think that uh, um, there should be absolute um, starkly low limits on how much people can donate to any candidate or any particular referendum. I, I think that getting money out of politics is, is crucial to... Uh, making it so that the system is in some really profound ways fair. It's, it's not now. It's, 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 it's a, I made the point on the podcast that I think that we're living in a kind of oligarchy, a kind of mediated oligarchy, and I still think so. Um, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but that might be the silver lining if we on the left can get our act together 
and get these things done, then, yeah, um, we will head, be heading back to the Dark Ages. Thanks for listening. Take care. The Parable of the Madman, 1882 Have you not heard of the madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace, and cried incessantly, I seek God! I seek God! As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage, immigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God? he cried. I will tell you. We have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually, backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying, as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the gravediggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? Gods, too, decompose. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives? Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed and whoever is born after us, for the sake of this deed he will belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. Here the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners, and they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern on the ground and it broke into pieces and went out. I have come too early, he said then. My time is not yet. This tremendous event is still on its way, still wandering. It has not yet reached the ears of men. Lightning and thunder require time. The light of the stars requires time. Deeds, though done, still require time to be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than most distant stars, and yet they have done it themselves. It has been related further that on the same day the madman forced his way into several churches and there struck up his requiem eternum deo. Let, led out and called to account, he is said always to have replied nothing but, What, after all, are these churches now if they are not the tombs and sepulchres of God? Friedrich Nietzsche. Probably uh, some, many, most 
of our listeners have read this at one time or another, or it's been exposed to it in a seminar somewhere. Um, this was recalled to me today because I was talking to my wife about um, the misanthropy that seems to be the very beating heart of progressive politics. And why this occurred to me is if you return, if you were, if you were to have this in front of you, you would notice that it is bookended by two things. The madman is laughed at by the people who do not believe in God. And then the madman condemns the people in churches who believe in God. The madman is trapped between two worlds. The madman is free, clearly, but in that freedom is a kind of vertigo. Uh, you know, there, there's sort of no, no map for where he is, no map for where he thinks we're going. And it occurred to me that this is at the very heart of what has happened to progressive politics. And what, you know, I, I hedge, the reason I'm pausing is because for most of my adult life, I have identified as a progressive. For me, being progressive meant enlarging the feast, pulling up more chairs to the table, making room for more people, increasing the brotherhood of men and women. That's what that meant to me. And conservative politics meant pulling chairs away from the table, saying there's, there's, it, the table's full, you got to go sit at the kids' table. right? There's not enough. We don't have enough. That's how I felt about progressive and conservative politics. What total horseshit that is. Can anyone, I mean, and I understand that we probably have progressive listeners, and, and, and undoubtedly uh, you know, many of you are friends or would be friends if I were to know you, but can you honestly look at progressive politics right now and think that what progressive politics is about is pulling up more seats to the table? Increasing the company, the brotherhood, the sisterhood of men and women, of trans? Well, make, the, make it as big as you want. I'm fine with that. Really, honestly, when you look at progressive politics, is that what you see? It is definitely not what I see. And so I feel like the madman. Without any of the, you know, the self-congratulation, I don't mean that, I, not, not claiming Nietzsche's genius or anything like that, not at all, but just trapped between these two worlds. I mean, I'm, I'm not a conservative, 100%, not conservative, like many, many things I uh, could never bring myself to side on conservative politics, but I am lost. I am totally lost. I don't get it. I don't understand what progressives stand for right now. I don't understand what they are angry about. I just, I don't get it. I really don't. I feel like, I feel like progressive politics is run by children and, and adolescents. I feel like these are the people that were laughing at Nietzsche. Thus, they yelled and laughed. Had he gone on a voyage, immigrated? Is he afraid of us? 
right? The madman who understood the implications of the murder of God, who understood the implications of disenchanting the universe and taking on that burden of meaning and making your own way, coming up with your own map, right? Jidu Krishnamurti said the truth is a pathless land. A pathless land, making your own way, forging your own way. This is what this is the task in front of all of us. But it's not taken seriously by progressives. It's just not. It's not taken seriously. The response there is no sense of responsibility on this issue. If they did, they wouldn't have so happily abandoned bodily autonomy, which we talked about last week, which is obviously kind of what led me to the note. And it's not about a COVID. I don't need to talk about COVID anymore. Like, like I mentioned to, to Seth and Stephen last week, I'm sick of talking about COVID. Um, but where are the principles here? Seriously, if you're listening to this, to the podcast, right? And, I, you know, and the notes get fewer listeners than, than our regular podcast. But some of you still, I know you're out there. What, can you answer where progressives are? Like, what, does, what do progressives stand for right now? Oh, you know, the conservative thing will bracket. I, I don't have an answer for that either. But again, my indignation, my umbrage comes because I've never, not in my adult life, you know, as a kid, my parents are fairly conservative. So as a kid, I probably identified with being conservative. But in my adult life, I've never identified with being conservative, which is not to say that I have a problem with conservatives. I don't at all, not even a little bit. Um, I don't want, to, I don't think that they are the sign of the beast as, as seems to be common in in the rhetoric of the left right now. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours? Lit a lamp when it was day outside. Why? Because we do not understand what we have done. We are ill-prepared for this responsibility, and that is abundantly clear. None of these people in politics, in progressive politics, are not none. I, that's an exaggeration. I shouldn't speak in hyperboles. Most are not prepared to actually take the responsibility for where we are as a country, where we are as a world. So many of these positions are fucking jokes. Jokes. Just a joke. An absolute joke. Not serious. Not real. Total fancy. That's my note for the week. Um, looking forward to talking to Seth and Steven this week. Um, take care.